welcome to the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast, where we discuss topics related to sterile and non-sterile compounding pharmacy in an effort to promote compliance and increase quality. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Prince and Seth DePasquale. Hello to all of our compounding friends and colleagues out there. We appreciate you joining Seth and I on this second episode of the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast. Before we get into today's topic, I just wanted to say thank you to those of you who decided to interact by leaving us those voicemails and those comments on the website after listening to the first podcast. Keep those comments coming because that certainly helps direct our conversations in the future. And we want to make sure that we're bringing you the best information possible, especially on those topics that you want to hear. So today's episode is going to be equally as special to us because you get to hear the story about how Seth and I met. Seth decided that he was going to start a website and document his trials and his tribulations while building and certifying a clean room, and one of which had a negative pressure room for USP 800 compliance, and he met with certain obstacles, and he decided that he was going to document those. I saw the article posted on LinkedIn, and then, of course, one of my design clients sent it to me asking me to read it to make sure that we didn't have some of those same pitfalls. Information was super intriguing, and one Saturday morning, about, I don't know, it was about mid-morning or so, I get a call from a Kentucky number, and I pick it up, and it's Seth. Seth introduces himself, and, you know, we have similar contacts, but we never actually met before, and so we talked for about 90 minutes about the industry, about our passions, uh, things in our lives, and it's just a really great conversation, and this podcast actually was born from that conversation, and so I'm going to now turn it over to Seth, but my question to you is, is Why? Why did you decide to do the documentation of the of the process, and why did you start the website? Because I think everybody, including myself, is going to find this to be a very interesting story and a very applicable story to what we do. Great question, Brian, and, and thanks for everyone for tuning in. Uh, this all started back when I was speaking with another pharmacist about compliance and USP 800, and I relayed my story to him. Um, and if you're not familiar with the story, um, it's, it's all on pharmacyinspection.com. Uh, it's, it's all about me becoming compliant with USB 800. So he encouraged me to talk about, talk about this and, and share it with him and share it with others. And when I heard this, my initial reaction was, now, nah, you know, no one wants to hear this. Uh, who, who actually wants to hear about this stuff? You know, like it's, it's, it's sort of nerdy stuff. And uh, uh, so I, I thought more about it and started looking online to see if there's actually any similar stories out there. And it was crickets, nothing. Uh, no one was talking about this. The, the issues that I was having, I hadn't seen one way or the other. Um, since I was such an early adopter, again, we did all this back in 2015. I thought maybe no one else was having these issues. So I, I started asking more pharmacists. I figured out, at least in my circle of pharmacy friends, that no one really had attempted to become compliant yet. Uh, for one reason or another. Um, when I started telling my experience, they were a little shocked. Again, talking talking to my pharmacy buddies, uh, I kept hearing, you have to start shouting this from the rooftops. Um, and the more I heard that, no one was actually attempting compliance at this point. Maybe this would be something good for, for others to know. The problem with early adoption with, with something like this is that you really have no one else to turn to. Uh, so we just hired 
who we thought was the most qualified group to do it moved on. So remembering back when we started having this issue uh, and issue after issue <laughs> uh, and having to muddle through this little by little, consultant after consultant, I thought, uh, yeah, maybe I should relay this uh, to as many people as I can so we don't bankrupt an entire industry on a grand scale in the process of becoming compliant with the USP 800. So, and and let me just let me just say one more thing. Um, I didn't write all this to scare people out of trying to become compliant with USB 800. I, I simply think that if you have the right tools, the right consultants, contractors, this is actually a very attainable goal. Certainly not impossible. Nor did I have the intention of writing this to cause 800 to get reversed or anything like that. I just wanted to give people a reference for what you shouldn't do and what potentially you you should do, or or at least let people know what worked for us. Um, and again, there, there's always more than one way to skin a cat. So what what I'm going to tell you doesn't necessarily, you know, have to be done by you, but it, it's what worked for us. And uh, I, I encourage you to, there's other ways to do it. And, we're, and we'll probably talk more about that. I'm going to put a link to exactly what happened in the show notes. And I also put a link to the executive summary of my story. Uh, that's a little bit more condensed. Um, but with that being said, let's let's kind of dive into this just a little bit. Um, so we wanted to design our space with the intent of becoming compliant with both USP 800 and 797 with what we knew at the time, uh, what was in 800 at the time. So again, this is like mid 2015. And really, I, I can sum up the whole problem in just a few sentences. We were exhausting too much air. And at one point we were too negative. And the makeup air that we were supplying, because of course, uh, if if air is being exhausted, it's it needs to be replaced. It, that's how you're creating a negative pressure. That makeup air wasn't HEPA filtered, uh, sort of. You know, by by way of it coming in through the the ante room, it's it's certainly HEPA filtered. But again, going back to the first point, if you're exhausting way too much air and you're too negative you're pulling way too much air and it's just gonna come from any which way it certainly can get it. Um, and how we fixed this was just realizing that when you're dealing with negative pressure, air is gonna be taken from the path of least resistance. That's, that's it. Uh, so what you have to do, at least what we did, is try to control where the air is coming from, creating that path of least resistance and make it clean air. So what that meant for us was backing out one degree um, outside of our anteroom, making that a positively pressured space, uh, what, what we call a prep area with HEPA filtered air. So in the end, what you have in essence is, is what one of my partners calls an anti-anteroom, a room that is maybe running at ISO 8 standards or better. Um, so it's clean, but it's not incredibly clean, uh, cleaner than the general area of your pharmacy. Um, and one other key point I, I will say is that um, we actually do not, we didn't, and we still don't qualify that area, that prep area, the anti-anti room, if you will, um, because you don't want to commit yourself to having to keep that ISO 8. You're really just interested in making the air clean, as, as clean as possible. And if you're certifying it and saying that it's ISO 8, then you need to maintain that standard. And that's not what, we, what we're trying to do. It's the idea of under-promising and over-delivering. So we are not certifying it. 
but we're keeping it ISO 8 standards. We actually do get it tested every, every six months, but we tell them to leave that off the report. We just want you to check what the air is doing. Just give us a diagnosis. So, you know, with, with that, you know, honestly, like that, my whole probably like 3000 word um, article that really sums up there's, there's a whole bunch of other things that I could talk about in terms of what bacteria and what, what fungus was in there. You know, all that is, is, is just, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what, what matters most is how did you actually fix the problem? And that's, that's kind of what we did in a nutshell. Um, you know, I, I want to turn it back over to Brian. Brian, you know, you've talked about having some clients come to you with my story and, asking you like you know are you aware of this do you you know like are you taking this into consideration when you're designing our clean rooms and you know what how does that conversation go for you and and what do you what do you usually say to people well first i'm glad that you you wrote the article because you took real experience um designers architects engineers mechanicals we can all design and draw the most beautiful thing. But the reality is if it doesn't work in the field, because it works on paper, doesn't mean it's going to work in the field. And yeah, you know, you, you, you've hit home on a lot of great issues. Where does that air come from in a negative, when you've got a negative pressure room, you found that you were probably at a 0.01 to 0.03 water column by looking at, you know, that you, whether you're using a magna helix or a Dwyer, or whatever pressure sensor monitor you were using, you were in range, but you were still finding problems. The thing about negative pressure air is that you're right, it's gonna take, well, air always takes the path of least resistance, especially on the negative side, because it has to, because that's where it's it's being pulled or exited or, so air can come from around light fixtures. Air can come around uh, light switches, um, around plug switches. It'll come under doors, around doors. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of weather stripping on doors. Again, this is one of those probably debatable points amongst consultants because all consultants like to agree to disagree on various points. But if you take off the weather stripping and you no longer have that gasket between door and frame, there's an area where uh, air pressure is going to come around and come through. Uh, and the reason why I don't like those because they're they're hard to clean and nobody ever really cleans those along with door sweeps. Again, very difficult to clean. Nobody really cleans those. So when you take those off, then you've got, you've opened up a bigger path uh, of, of less resistance for air to come through. And so air could be coming from the ceiling tiles if they're not all caulked down. You know, sometimes we'll leave one ceiling tile open for, you know, getting and adjusting uh, potentiometers on the fan filter units above the rooms. And so again, air is going to find, it's, it's really, it, it's the envelope, right? How tight can you make the envelope? You can't make it a submarine hatch. It's just not going to happen. It's a room. It's constructed of of materials that are, you know, of, of various natures. Whether it's epoxy, whether it's uh, you know insulated panels, whether it's uh, extruded aluminum and tempered glass or polycarbonate, you can only get that envelope so tight. And so I think people would really be surprised if you could have a large volumetric smoke study of the room right outside the negative pressure and really flood that environment. And that's the the positive anti that is pushing the air potentially into the negative buffer to really, if you could see that small trace of air where it's actually coming from. So I think in your case, you were seeing air coming from maybe the interstitial space, which is that space above the room. It was coming around cracks under the door. And so, yeah, if that uh, air outside of your buffer was not conditioned properly 
or to some sort of standard, then yeah, it was potentially pulling in dirty air, as well as if it's coming around the ceiling tiles. You can't condition the interstitial space, that space that some people call it a plenum space. You can't condition that necessarily. Well, you, you can, but again, we get into a debate of do I, does my clean room run on an open plenum system or is it direct ducted? So you see, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different ways to make the clean room happen. And so when you get in like your situation, who knows where the air was coming from? It was really a mystery, right? And so you found that if you can condition that air right outside the space, any negative pressures can be pulled, at least we'll have some conditioning. And so your ISO 7 room wasn't having to work as hard to condition that air that was being pulled in from now, what is, I'm guessing it's an ISO 8 space right outside of that. So it, again, it's, the solution with particles is dilution. And we that's something you'll hear back in uh, chemical handling, guys. The solution is always dilution. And so if, if if the dilution doesn't have to work as hard, that ISO 7 doesn't have to work as hard because it's already got some conditioning, then that makes life a lot easier. So it's, it, it's like I said earlier, there's a lot of different ways to make that happen, but it obviously has to be done right. Right, right. You know, I, I've talked to a couple of people that actually were in the process of writing USB 800. You know, so I'm not going to name names, but you know, one of the things that they noticed, um, and and they're not necessarily in the in the weeds as as you've said in the past um, on a daily basis, but they'll walk into hospitals or walk into compounding pharmacies, and they've noticed that some of these pharmacies pressures are either way too high or way too low. So if you're, if you're positively pressured and you're pushing out way too much air, you're creating a lot of turbulence in the air, which in, in could not be good. Depends on how fast, I guess, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's one of those things that depends. <laughs> and, and if you're too negative and you're, sucking out too much air then then that's also an issue um so you know it just makes me want to say that be mindful of of those pressures make sure that your your dwyer uh magna helix are calibrated and 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 that you actually are getting those those pressures that are required and, and just to throw those out there you know for usp 800 we're talking between negative 0 0.01 to negative 0 0.03 inches water column. Um, you know, Brian, you, you've designed a whole bunch of these and probably seen or, or gone in behind somebody else and, and maybe had to clean up somebody else's work. How, many, how often do you see something like that going on? I would say semi-frequently. Um, you know, architects and engineers do wonderful drawings. They're, a lot of them are great at what they do. But they don't necessarily specialize as well as mechanical engineers. Uh, and where I find that I have some tugs of war on projects being brought in about midway, you know, after the clean room company has designed what they're going to design, maybe the GC's involved, maybe not, the A&E's involved, and now i got a mechanical, and I've got to kind of corral it and say, all right, let's talk about what negative pressure really means. And one of the biggest issues that I have battling with these folks with USP Hunters, helping them understand, there is no opportunity for recirculation of air back into the air handler, back into that space, or into any space. It is a 100% exhaust. And that's the biggest point where people have a hard time wrapping their mind around it. But, and I, and I have a, gra a graphic that I'll show. And if we're going to put this on video, maybe we'll pop that graphic up there. And it's a very typical, what does a compounding room look like? There's only two types of airflow. There's laminar and there's turbulent. 
it is very difficult to achieve a truly laminar environment. And where I come in and I see projects where we have to kind of, your words, clean it up a little bit, is that they've got the air changes jacked so incredibly high, right? So if you look at um, international standards, IST standards, I believe is what it is, you know, they're saying that in order to achieve an ISO 7, you must have above, was it 60 to 90? And then to get an ISO 5, you've got to have 240. I mean, the numbers are, are just mind boggling. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, okay, the USP standard says that we just have to have above 30. So where uh, I like to target and where my partner, Sean, who does my, fil he's my, fil I call him my partner, he's a filtration engineer, he's a wonderful guy, what he does, and we'll have him on soon, is we go in and we see that rooms are, are they're, they're getting, we look at their test and balance reports sometimes afterwards, and we see that they're getting, one we just did up in the Northeast, man, they were getting, what was it, 110 air changes or something like that, and they were only, and they only had to maintain an ISO 8 in this specific environment. Um, wow. It was just Kind of a so so we're like no 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 let's let's dial this down a little bit um, and interesting enough that particular firm who designed that room what was it two years ago so maybe we're coming in way way after right and they're just they've been dealing with the problems uh, of excessively turbulent environment that firm is no longer business and not because they probably did anything horrible but just conceptually I just don't think they got what it is we're trying to accomplish here so USP says that we only have to achieve in these isolated environments a minimum air change of 30. So we like to target 45. Uh, we'll, we will actually design the system, uh, the makeup air, air units or, or air handlers for that specific space based on a couple of things. Um, number one is the, the, the temperature target minus one. So we, we target 68 minus one. So we really target 67 because each incremental, and I feel like I'm still in Sean's thunder here, each incremental temperature degree that you drop from that, the, the dollar values go up very high as it relates to the conditioning of, of the units. And the units are all very geographic based. They're based on what's called the ASHRAE table. Uh, and we'll get deeper into this later. Um, but in, in this particular situation, they had overpowered that space. And so now we've got to come in and go, okay, you know, these units are running on that constant volume. They're, they're, they're pushing X amount. So how do we temper these things down now? That becomes even more difficult because Investing in capital equipment is going to be a big deal. And so I guess my advice, I don't want to say warning, my advice to those that are in the planning, of course, now we've got a lot more time to plan these environments moving um, towards December 1st of 2019 is to, the, the, the biggest sticking point, the biggest financial ouch moment is going to happen when they look at how much those makeup air units are going to cost to replace 100% of the air. Smaller rooms replacing, uh, you know, 400 CFM. Each time, maybe not such a big deal, but larger rooms, you know, we're, we're sizing out units regularly now for multiple workstations um, and they're getting, you know, we're having to replace anywhere from 800 to 1200 CFM. That's when the dollars start growing. Now, don't let me tell you that don't grow your business, absolutely grow your business because there is a such thing as the economy of scale in business, but don't overpower the unit. And that's kind of where we get into people saying, well, what? Uh, what if I grow in the future? Let's go ahead and add another ton worth of weight. And really, we don't look at tons. We look at CFMs in this business. So tons don't really mean a lot to us per se. We look more at how much CFM has to be replaced, how much CFM is going to be cycled, you know, in the 797 space, how much, what is that percentage of fresh air? So there's a lot of methodology that really goes in. So to answer your question in a really long drawn out format, is that, yeah, we've had to come in and, and really uh, clean up some situations where airflows are just way, way too high. You can still achieve exactly what you need to achieve without pushing above 60 air changes. 
And again, this will be probably where some consultants and some mechanicals and other will agree to disagree with this. But um, I like to target in those type of environments, 45 air changes per hour. And then we got to figure out, okay, do we need to add one more fan filter unit and temper down all the other ones a little bit lower? And that's another kind of methodology is how, uh, you know, some fan filter units have three speeds. Some have a potentiometer that allow you to set it at any speed. Do you set, do you want to originally set up a fan filter unit at 40% or 50% or 60%? Do we add another fan filter unit? Well, therefore we have to add more supply. So there really is an incredible balancing act that has to happen to make sure that when you do pressure mapping, when you're doing the design of, of, a, of a facility, pressure mapping is really important to understand which way the airflows are going to go and what are those pressures. Because when you're now mixing, like you said, an anti-anti buffer, um, so imagine that you've now tossed in a, a negative pressure um, pre-sterilization room. So you're going uh, negative anti to a positive anti to break up the space going into the negative buffer. Now that's whether or not you do that is you don't really have to, but that's one of the designs we're going through now. So imagine a negative, a positive, a negative. Now we're having to pressure map out multiple spaces. And so, like I said, it's the methodologies is, and, and Sean's going to be much more credible to talk about this. I know enough to really be dangerous and talk about this subject somewhat intelligently with mechanicals and A&E and HVACs. Um, but it really is a, an incredible balancing act. So to pick up on a, a few of the things that you said there, you know, um, the temperature humidity thing, uh, I, I can very well <laughs> echo what you're saying with getting down just a degree or two is going to, that's when you start jumping up and, and you might not think like, oh, you know, 68 degrees, that's not, that's not that cool. Go to 67, uh, 66, 65. And, and those dollar amounts to get to those points. Um, and let's, let's throw humidity on top of that as well. Um, while it's not necessarily a requirement per se, but it's definitely a suggested thing uh, to keep your humidity below 60%. And, and, and some will even tell you, you know, 45% might, might, might want to have 45% as your ceiling there. So yep, what we did, and, and, and we've talked about this a couple of times, is, is bought, bought a desiccant dehumidifier, which, you know, you take your average HVAC system that maybe you're going to put in your house that's like a, you know, a five-ton unit or something, um, may cost anywhere from five to $10,000, I don't know, um, to get to where we needed, which was our requirements were below 68 degrees, below 45% at all times. Um, so you take that $10,000 mark um, and you multiply it by eight <laughs> to get to where we needed to be at all times. It was roughly, you know, 80 to, to 100 grand at the end of the day installed and everything. So yeah, that, that can add up really quickly. Um, another thing you mentioned about throwing out too much air, you know, at one point with our room, we had a, uh, a balancer come in post like it, it initial startup, uh, when we figured out that we had a whole bunch of issues and he had said, you know, like we're, we're throwing out way too much air. You're, you're at over 60 air changes per hour. So let's, let's turn that exhaust down. And so that, that was probably the first step in, in figuring out what, at least some of our issues. Um, and, I, and I will say you talked about having the uh, sort of a rheostat on, on the, uh, 
the filter fan units. And that's so key because uh, another part of our project uh, post initial startup was to put rheostats that are connected to the fan filter units right on the wall. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's covered enough and up high enough that no one's really going to touch them. Um, so they're, they're not really moving or, or doing anything unless we want them to. But if we do need to make an adjustment at some point, we can, and it makes it a whole lot easier. So you use the word rheostat and I said potentiometer, they kind of serve a, a very similar purpose, maybe at different levels for different pieces of equipment, but don't get caught up on the technical jargon here. Uh, and speaking of technical jargon, I wrote an article last November that got published in Pharmacy Purchasing Products Magazine entitled Facility and Engineering Controls Using USP 800 Guidelines. My goal for writing that paper was to demystify some of this USP 800 jargon that was out there to let people know that it is really not a difficult process. And again, people probably listening to this podcast going, well, it sounds like it was a difficult process. It, it, it can be, but we can demystify that. And that article, and again, my goal was so that you could have an intelligent conversation with a local HVAC contractor to let them know what it is that you're trying to achieve. The reality is, is that they may not know either what they're doing in this particular situation. And this is really a mechanical engineer type heavy. You may or may not even have to get into that, depending on whether you're pulling a permit. And sometimes when you pull a crane up to your facility to pick up a big, you know, X ton heavy makeup air unit, you're probably gonna pull a permit for that. But again, that's up to your, your local general contractor. But the goal was to demystify the process a little bit. Uh, and I think that's really what our goal is. We're going to continue to, to to kind of tear this apart a little bit by little bit and bring some of the parts and pieces to it. So we continue to talk a lot about USP 800 in these podcasts, but I don't want people to feel like this is just going to be a USP 800 podcast. It just happens to be that hot topic of the moment. It's the thing that I live every day. This is what I design the majority of, and this is what Seth has gone through. And so right now for us to really kick off the first and the second episode in this podcast series, we wanted to talk about those things that are number one, hot, and number two, really close to our hearts and our, basically our, our daily activities. But as we lead down this path, more episodes are going to come forth. And we've got so many guests that are lined up from compliance, accreditation, uh, equipment interaction, pharmacist, technicians. We've got a slew. We've got some operations folks. And so what we're going to do here is bring a complete holistic perspective to uh, to the USP world, to the compounding world. And our goal day in and day out with our businesses and with these podcasts is number one, raise the bar. So, wow, that, that wrapped up episode number two. And I'm telling you, this is, it gets more fun every time we do this. And I, I really appreciate the fact that everybody is so super interactive and we continue to uh, encourage you to interact with the website. Come in, leave us a voicemail at pharmacyinspection.com. Type in a message, ask us a question, because again, your comments are going to help drive the direction of these podcasts. So thank you for joining us. Have a great week and keep raising the bar.